Behold, O Lord, a lamb of your own flock, a sheep of your own fold, and a sinner of your own redeeming. Amen. I invite you to be seated. I want you to imagine yourself one day receiving a summons to court. You arrive not knowing what to expect and are escorted by an officer past the onlookers to be seated in the defendant's chair. No trial has started, and a nervous tension fills the room as all wait for something to begin. And after a while, a court clerk enters by a side door and everyone sits up. All rise, and every eye is fixed on the chamber door behind the bench, waiting for the judge to appear. But the door stays closed. The silence lingers until it is broken once more by the voice of the court clerk reading your name from a piece of paper. And then he says, you are hereby sentenced to life in prison without parole. This court is adjourned. And the bailiff steps forward to clasp your hands in handcuffs. And with no explanation, you are led off into the dark. A sentence, no trial, no charges, no evidence, no judge. A sentence with no verdict. This is Job's courtroom. It is the setting of one of the most powerful books of the Bible. The story begins by declaring Job a righteous man, blameless and upright, blessed beyond measure with wealth, family, and honor. But in the course of a few minutes, he loses all of it. His possessions are stolen, his servants murdered, his children crushed to death in a tragic accident. And then Job loses his health as well. Terrible sores grow all over his body so that he could not even lie down without great pain. Job was sentenced. Sentenced to a lifetime of grief within and pain without. No trial, no examination, just the sentence. The sentence with no verdict. It left Job alone to sit in the darkness and mourn. His wife bid him curse God, his judge, and die. But as only a truly blameless man could, Job commits his trust to God. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, if the book ended there, it would be but a remarkable example of faith. But it does not end there. Though Job initially accepts his sentence, as the story progresses, the lack of a verdict grows into a crisis. Because the sentence seems to say, guilty. But Job knows and insists that he is innocent. And precisely because he believes in God, and he believes that God is just, and he believes that God is God, he knows that God is responsible for his sentence and aware of his innocence. Therefore, God must be unjust, because he gives sentences with no verdicts. That is the crisis with which the trial begins, and Job be thrusts us into the depths of his confusion and faith and grief. He begins by cursing the day of his birth. And at times, as he goes through his arguments, 
He will find some hope and consolation, but at others, he will call out in protests against his judge, so sharp that you might wonder whether they really belong in the Bible. He says in chapter 6 and 7, The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. I have been given a meaningless life. Nights of misery have been assigned to me. When I think that sleep will comfort me, even then, you, God, frighten me with dreams. I'd rather be strangled. I despise my life. Leave me alone. My days have no meaning. Will you never look away from me or let me alone for an instant? Soon I will lie down in the dust and you, God, will search for me, but I will be no more. The grief of Job is more than simply that he has lost his family or his health. The grief for Job is that he seems to have lost his God. The judge of the universe is unjust, punishing the innocent. And worse still, his judge won't even show up and give him a trial. How then, Job asks, how can I dispute with God? Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe that he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and would hurt me again and again for nothing. For nothing. That is the core of Job's complaint. God has sentenced me for nothing. Now, if Job's protests make you feel uncomfortable, you are in good company. Job's friends, who had initially come to mourn with him and sit in the darkness with him, they cannot stand to listen to his accusations. They, too, see the sentence, and they agree that God is responsible, but they cannot accept that there was no verdict. God would never punish the blameless. There cannot be a sentence without a verdict. So they rush to become God's defenders by becoming Job's prosecutors. Think now, one of them says, did anyone who was actually innocent ever perish? If your children sinned against God, he gave them just what the consequences of their sin deserved. Admit it, Job, God took from you less than you deserved. The verdict, Job's prosecutors insist, it must be guilty. Guilty of what? They can't really say because no charges were filed. But he must be guilty of something. But Job is defiant. He reasserts again and again his innocence and taunts his friends, calling for charges to be filed. How can someone be guilty if there are no charges? In fact, Job takes his argument further. Innocent people suffer all the time. He says God blinds the eyes of judges so that they rule unjustly. He is idle when evil people exploit the poor or corrupt justice. People go about naked and starving and groaning, though God has charged none of them with wrong. So Job demands that God bring a written indictment against him, not fearing that he'll be shown guilty, but so that he can take it and wrap it up like a crown and wear it on, a head, on his head as a badge of his own innocence. For he's convinced that any charges would be so thoroughly refuted by an actual fair examination that he could wave them about as nonsense. So Job insists he needs a defender a lawyer who can stand between him and this unjust judge. If only there was an arbiter between us, he says, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me. Only then would the case be settled. Only then would it be seen that the verdict must 
be innocent. And here's the thing. Job is right. The verdict is innocent. But the verdict was never declared in Job's courtroom. For behind that chamber door was another courtroom, God's courtroom. And there a trial took place that Job never got to see. But we do. We, the readers of Job, know what took place behind the chamber door. There was a trial in God's courtroom. And in that trial, the missing verdict was given. Right at the beginning, before the evidence, before the examination, before there was even a defendant and a prosecutor, there was a verdict from the mouth of God who said in chapter 1, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. There's your verdict. Innocent. And with that verdict, the trial begins. For Satan, the accuser, the prosecuting attorney, he cannot stand to hear that anyone is right with God. And so he files charges. Of course he fears you, God. You're buying him off. You've hedged him about. You've surrounded him with blessings. He does not serve you for nothing. That's the charge. The prosecution charges that Job serves and fears God only to get rewards, only to serve himself. And so the accuser proposed that he be allowed to take everything away from Job, his possessions, his family, his health. Nothing can be left. Sentence Job to a life of grief and misery, and he will curse you to your face. And then it will be seen that Job serves you only to serve himself. So who is right? The accuser, who charges Job with self-serving faith, or the judge, who declares him blameless and upright? There's only one way to know. There's only one way to demonstrate Job, Job's innocence. And that is the sentence. The sentence inflicted on Job is his defense. It is him having everything stripped from him so that it will be made manifest that he will still love and serve God even when he has nothing. So God gives the accuser permission to take it all. His children, his possessions, his health, And then you will see that he serves me for nothing in return. So it is not that Job has no defender. The Lord himself is his defender who demonstrates his innocence by the sentence. It is not that the judge is unjust, but he sees and acknowledges Job's innocence. It is not a sentence without a verdict, but a sentence that proves the verdict. These are the two courtrooms, God's and Job's. In one, the sentence is given. In the other, the verdict. In Job's, the judge is absent, but the prosecution and sentence declare Job guilty. In God's courtroom, the judge speaks and declares Job innocent. In Job's court, we hear pleas for a defender, accusations against the judge, and despair that God is an enemy. In God's court, we see the just judge. We see that Job has a defender who demonstrates his innocence. And in God's courtroom, we see the true enemy, the Satan, the accuser. We see both courtrooms. We know the meaning of the story. We know the purpose. But in Job's courtroom, Job cannot see it, not even when the chamber door finally opens. 
That is where our Old Testament lesson picks up in Job's story. After 36 chapters of cross-examination between Job and his friends, the judge storms in and takes his seat, and he remains the judge. He does not submit to Job's questions. He does not explain himself, but he questions Job instead. Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Who shut up the sea behind its doors? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Tell me if you know, for you were there. God's response to Job is two chapters of beautifully ironic poetry meant to lay bare the chasm between Job's ignorance and God's might between the two courtrooms. It strikes us perhaps as a little harsh and unpastoral, but it boils down to a simple but difficult truth. Job, be quiet. You don't know what you're talking about. You weren't there in the beginning, and you don't know the end. So just be still and know that I am God. And God is right. God is God. And Job doesn't know what he's talking about. He knows nothing of the hidden courtroom. He knows nothing of the verdict that God spoke. And he never gets to. God never ushers him through the chamber door so that he can see and understand why it was all worthwhile, why it made sense for him to lose his children. God does not try to explain away Job's suffering. Why? Because if he did, then Job would know that God was on his side and he'd not be serving God for nothing. The accuser's charge would go unanswered because Job would know that he's serving God for the sake of his approval. He'd know that God was really his defender and advocate and he wouldn't be serving God for nothing. Job must suffer his sentence without knowing the verdict. He must trust God for nothing at all, simply because God is God. And by the miracle of faith, Job does. He lays down his accusations and his questions, and he admits, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The twist in the story is what comes next. Though Job spoke of things he did not understand, he did speak rightly. As God turns to Job's friends who prosecuted Job with all their accusations, he says, you have not spoken of me what was right as my servant Job has. Job has spoken ignorantly, but he has spoken rightly. How is that? How is he both right and wrong in everything he has said? He did indeed suffer for nothing, but not because God was his enemy. Job rightly rejected his prosecutor's accusations, but he was wrong to think that God was against him. He rightly insisted on his innocence, but wrongly assumed that his sentence was therefore without reason. Job was right to call for a defender, but wrong to despair that God had not provided one. Job's words are both true and false because they're heard in both courtrooms, even though Job remains confined into his own until death and never sees behind that chamber door. And these two courtrooms and the chasm between them are how Job's courtrooms connect to ours.
You are not Job. Your story did not begin with God declaring you blameless and upright. Job is unique for his innocence, God says, but he's not unique for his suffering. At one point or another in your life, you will know what it's like to sit in Job's courtroom and hear a sentence read. Maybe it's by a doctor who reads a sentence like cancer or Parkinson's. Maybe it's by a spouse who said, I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. Maybe it was a phone call that you feared and thought about only in your worst dreams. All of you will hear some terrible sentence at some point or other in your life. Maybe, maybe it'll come with a verdict. Maybe it'll be your fault. You'll know your guilt and you know you could have done better and maybe you could have averted it. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll be someone else's guilt and no fault of your own. Or maybe there simply will be no connection at all between your guilt and your sentence. At some point or another, every one of you will sit in the ashes with Job and wonder about the justness of the judge. And if you don't, if you think I'm taking this a little too seriously, then listen to Job as he points you beyond himself to the magnitude of injustice in this world. And think about, let yourself be exposed to the children who've been enslaved by the greed or lust of others. The young men whose future, whose futures were devoured by the ambitions of a conqueror. Every year, hundreds of thousands of lives are ended before they've ever seen the light of day. History is filled with injustices and crimes that will never be answered for in this life. In 1918, Mary Turner was eight months pregnant in Georgia. And one day she watched as a mob lynched her husband for a crime he did not commit, untried. The next day, when she spoke out publicly against his murderers, she herself was lynched and mutilated and burned, along with her unburned child. And no one was ever brought before a judge for those crimes. Is Job wrong when he asks, The earth is given into the hands of the wicked. God covers the face of its judges. If it's not he, then who is it? See, the power of the book of Job is that it takes with its utmost seriousness both the truth that God is God and that evil is evil. Whether that evil be our own or that of others, Job stares directly into the darkness with integrity, and only because he does are his words heavy and thick enough to sustain us when we stare into the darkness and sit in the ashes. But when we do, and when we contemplate his grief, And we learn from Job that God is God. We also remember that we differ from Job in another way. He never knew what went on behind the chamber door in God's courtroom. But you do. You know what took place in God's courtroom. You know the trial that happened for you. You can actually see it in your mind's eye. You sat as a defendant and the prosecution, that ancient accuser. He proved without any effort beyond a shadow of a doubt that, unlike Job, you are guilty. One glance at the law is enough to expose and prove the charges of selfishness, idolatry, lust, greed, slander, pride, indifference, bigotry. You can see the judge sitting at the bench, listening and watching throughout, and you know he sees all and knows all, so there's no surprise when the verdict is read guilty on all charges. And you can hear that judge pronouncing the just judgment. You are hereby sentenced to death. And that bailiff steps forward towards you, holding out those handcuffs. 
And it is just at that moment that the judge rises. Leaving his regal robes at the bench, he comes down and dons the orange clothes of a convict, places his hands in your cuffs, and is let off into the dark. And the court clerk reads your name once more and says, sentence served. Sentence served. God's response to Job's accusations. God's response to the question of human suffering. God's response to your accusations is the sending of his son, Jesus. For God did not simply observe the evil and suffering from on high, but he entered into it and suffered it himself in its depths as man. In Jesus, God not only bore the pain of the human body, but the agony and the confusion of the human soul. He watched injustice triumph as a creepy king killed his cousin. He was condemned by people who claimed to be standing up for God. He was innocently sentenced to death. And in Gethsemane, he learned firsthand what it was like to have your request in prayer denied. And as he hung on the cross, the Son of God hurled Job's question, your question, the question of every human sufferer, into a silent sky. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? G.K. Chesterton once wrote about these words, that in the tale of the passion there is the distinct emotional suggestion that the author of all things in some unthinkable way went not only through agony but through doubt. When the world shook and the sun was wiped out of heaven, it was not at the crucifixion but at the cry from the cross, the cry which confessed that God was forsaken of God, that God was sitting in the ashes with Job and with you that he who laid the foundations of the earth was laid in the earth, that the one who stretched out the measurements for the cosmos was stretched out upon a cross, that he who shut the sea in its doors was drowned in the depths of human misery, that he who commanded the dawn would be forsaken in utter darkness, that the gates of death were closed on the author of life, that the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy, before the dark and mysterious mystery that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, in the death of Jesus, you entered into you suffered and you took our grief, our sin, everything that this creation has suffered. And in the resurrection of Jesus, you made possible the redemption of the world. Help us, strengthen us as we sit and wait for the renewal of all things. Give our hearts hope when we cannot imagine hope. Give our hearts trust when they want to despair, and help us to see in Jesus your promise to make all things new. Amen.